Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We've, we've tackled a lot of topics that make me sad, that make me angry, that make me feel that we just need to do a better job. Today's topic doesn't make me feel necessarily those ways, but it does make me feel like I'm curious. I'm curious about this topic. My guest is uh, Associate Professor in Media and Communication, Dr. Caitlin Mendes. She is joining us from the School of Media, Communication, and Sociology at the University of Leicester. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, Leicester. Leicester. Okay. Yes. See, see, if I was, if I'd never been to England, I would have said Leicester. You know, <laughs> but uh, I, I came close. So thank you for correcting me there. And welcome, Caitlin. Is it all right for me to call you, Caitlin? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Great. You have written extensively on um, feminism in the media, and particularly feminist use of social media to challenge rape culture. Now, I think we've all, as a matter of fact, we've done a couple of shows on the hashtag MeToo thing. We're all kind of familiar with how that's taken off and just gone, you know, crazy because of social media. Uh, yeah. And, but what? We're talking other things, other ways that feminine, you know, I, what have you found in your, your research? Uh, the hashtag MeToo movement has brought the uh, whole idea of, of sexual assault and sexual harassment to the forefront. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody um, who hasn't heard of the hashtag MeToo. Although I shouldn't speak so soon. I just read an article in, in GQ. Are you familiar with that magazine? Yeah. Yes. yes. Gentleman's Quarterly, I think it was. And um, it was they had a woman from some woman's magazine, and then they had somebody from, from GQ talking about men's understanding. And to be quite honest with you, I was shocked by the results because uh, apparently, at least with GQ readers, there's a huge chunk of men who have never heard of it or who are <laughs> confused by it, you know, so wow. I, I shouldn't be so glib as to say everyone's heard, yeah. you know, yeah, okay. So um, that that study aside, or that survey, I guess I should say, aside, um, how how are women using social media? How is this helping feminism? Yeah, so, well, I guess it's kind of, there's two questions there. So the first question is, how are women so using social media? And the answer to that is that it's extraordinarily diverse. And it includes a range of these kind of high-profile campaigns like Me Too, but also a range of other deliberately hidden and quiet tactics. So Me Too has really kind of made this digital feminist activism or hashtag feminism, it's re made it really popular. But even if we go back a few years and remember hashtags like Bring Back Our Girls, which talks about the kidnapping of um, several hundred schoolgirls um, in Nigeria uh, by Boko Haram, you know, that attracted quite a bit of mainstream public attention because you had people like Michelle Obama who were tweeting that. You had hashtags like he for she, which was championed by Emma Watson on behalf of the UN to try to get um, men as allies to kind of support women. Um, you had other hashtags such as yes all women trending after the Isla Vista shootings in California back in 2014. So Me Too really is just kind of um, the most visible element of hashtag feminism. And it's only really one element. So aside from hashtag feminism, which is where women and men um, use these hashtags to speak to one another and make visible a, a whole range of different experience or issues. There are a whole range of other sorts of ways that women are using not just social media, but the internet to make visible their experiences of, say, 
sexism or street harassment, as we can see with websites such as Hollaback or the Everyday Sexism Project here in Britain. Um, or, like I say, we can look at kind of like the quiet uses of WhatsApp groups and high iPhone group chats that we see a lot of, say, teenage girls using in schools because they don't want to use Twitter. They don't want to make their experiences publicly available and open themselves up for trolling. Mm. So digital feminist activism is extraordinarily broad uh, and serves a whole different range of purposes. You know, I, I'm struck when you say that, you know, some of these sites are used for, for women who do not want to share their experiences broadly. Because when yeah. I think of the Internet, I assume that it is broad, whether it's intended to be or not. Um, I mean, once it's there on the Internet, it is there for anyone who actually wants to uh, seek it out. So is that just, how is that perceived as being less public? Ah, so well, it depends, because even if, say, you use a public platform like Facebook, a social media platform, Facebook has different functions. So one of the functions that it has is group pages, and there there are uh, three different security levels. So you can have kind of these open group pages where anyone can see that the group exists and who's a member and what's posted. You have more secure groups where you can see that the group exists and maybe who's a member but not what's posted. And then you have these closed and secret groups where you cannot see that they exist, you cannot see who's a member, and you can't see what they post. So though, you know, I have evidence from my own research talking to, to different feminists who talk about the way that they use these secret groups to talk about issues such as rape culture, um, who get together as, um, you know, to, to organize feminist events, to create these kind of like digital safe spaces where they can talk about issues uh, in their private life, but they don't want to make it visible. So, you know, you're using these social media platforms that everyone thinks if you post something on Facebook, um, it's immediately going to be made visible. Um, but in fact, um, women and men are actually finding ways of using these platforms quite strategically and deliberate ways depending on how visible they want uh, their sentiments to be. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the hashtag movement, which is what I'm, you know, most of us I think are pretty familiar with as far as social media use for social, you know, uh, uh, feminist change. Uh, what other issues uh, are, are coming up? Certainly I haven't seen any that's as prominent as the hashtag Me Too movement. Yeah. You know, so... Um, Feminists are using digital technologies to talk about a wide range of issues, um, including things such as sexual violence, so um, talking about uh, the prominence of sexual violence, the different ways that women experience sexual violence, and we can think of sexual violence here operating on a spectrum, so from things such as um, catcalling or street harassment all the way up to um, rape, battery, assault, etc., they're talking about sexism, so ways that they are um, discriminated against or ways that they feel as though they're kind of still prejudiced against, prejudices against them because they're women. They're talking more generally about what we might think of as rape culture, so the way that women are often blamed when, they're, um, when they experience any sort of sexual violence. 
Um, we can see them talking about um, intersectional feminist issues, so not just the way, you know, maybe the way that, um, actually it's been interesting in the wake of Me Too, there have been these discussions about the ways that white feminists, for example, their voices, their experiences um, have received much more mainstream media attention. Um, well, if I can interrupt you for a second, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, typically uh, we talked off the air before we started our, our recorded conversation that, you know, I remember the the feminism in the in the late 70s and mm-hmm. um, it was very much criticized and very much perceived as a white woman's a middle class white woman's or a privileged white okay. women's movement um, yeah. and then I think uh, during the 80s and 90s it started to become more around sexual issues sexual identity issues um, uh, but it, it, I think and I sometimes I wonder um, if the word feminism, I mean, maybe it's different now, but it seems like maybe 10, 12 years ago, it's almost like people refuse to use the word feminism. You know, I'm not a feminist, but I believe in da-da-da-da-da, and they're defining feminism. Um, Mm. Has that perception of feminist being the privileged white woman's movement changed at all? Yeah, it has changed, probably in the last... 10, 15 years, I think that's because we start to see a lot more white middle class women who are who are starting to be able to recognize their privilege more, who are um, approaching feminism from a more intersectional perspective. Now, that being said, there are still many examples of where white middle class women, cisgendered women have been called out. And, you know, it's been kind of made quite clear to them. You know, maybe they started their activism with the best of intentions. They thought they were speaking on behalf of, you know, a diverse group of women when, it, in fact, they, they sort of had their uh, assumptions challenged. And I can think of the example of Slut Walk. So, um, you know, I've written a book about Slut Walk. I spent a lot of time studying the movement. That was a movement that was started by um, two Canadian women, one of whom identified as a feminist, the other who, who didn't well, initially didn't identify as a feminist. Um, and, you know, they called the movement Slut Walk because a Toronto police officer um, told women at York University in, in Canada that if they didn't want to get raped, don't dress like a slut. And so these two women were really angered and they thought, you know, this is uh, absurd how women today are still being called sluts. And what they didn't anticipate was the ways that um, black women, Latina women, came forward and said, well, slut isn't actually the term that's most predominantly used against us. It's ho. Uh, Maybe nowadays it might be thought. Uh, Maybe it's punta. So that was kind of a wake-up call, you know, to um, to the founders who I think would have considered themselves to kind of have this intersectional view that actually they still had a lot of privileges. And for example, the original March wanted to go to the Toronto Police Headquarters to protest the ways that women didn't feel comfortable uh, reporting their assault to the police. Whereas we had black women, we had sex workers, we had migrants saying we would never have even considered going to the police with our assault because of the ways that we are discriminated against, um, you know, not just because we're women, but because we have these other identities. Okay, so we are seeing then... um Okay, I'm not quite sure how to follow up on that. Um, so, so maybe if the point is that feminism today has a more intersectional understanding, but we can still definitely see evidence of white privilege, and we can still see the ways that, in fact, when we look at when we look at digital feminism, it is still 
often the voice of white middle class women who still get hurt. Even, I don't know if you talked about this in your other program with Me Too, that hashtag wasn't founded by Alyssa Milano. It was founded by um, oh, yes. a woman, yeah, Toronto. A woman Burke. of color, yes, yes. Exactly. So yeah. how, you know, the hashtag doesn't achieve any level of visibility until, you know, it's kind of promoted by this white middle class woman with a lot of power. Um, and in fact, so that, that's one of the things that we tried to study. So I've just finished writing a book on digital feminist activism. And one of the things that we tried to look at was, you know, whose voices are actually um, speaking and are they talking about, you know, intersectional issues? Or are they talking about, you, you know, I suppose issues pertaining to kind of um, white middle class women? And, and we can see that you know, there we see more diversity in, in, in the issues that are coming forward. But from what we can tell, there are still, I suppose, certain privileges. And we can still see um, that digital feminist activism still seems to be dominated by white middle class women. Okay, uh, but just to be a devil's advocate here, white middle class women also experience sexual assault. They also experience many of these issues. Just because uh, I, I, one of the, the issues that's of interest to me um, is the issue of interpersonal violence and domestic violence um, mm-hmm. and partner violence. And there is uh, one segment which is a wealthy woman Okay, many wealthy women um, are wealthy because their husbands are wealthy. It doesn't mean that they necessarily control any 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 funds at all or any assets. And yet, when those women try to leave um, a a um, domestic violence situation, the help that they can receive from social service organizations, the help that they receive um, from uh, the the perceptions of of their suffering, if you will, are absolutely minimized. It's at they're they're absolutely minimal because they're perceived as rich white women. So why would they need? Why would they be suffering? Why would they you know? And yet, absolutely. in fact, they have a great deal to lose. They have probably more to lose um, uh, in some aspects than uh, a poorer woman. So it's one of my little pet peeves that, um, I mean, of course, we don't want something to be totally white privileged women. But um, let's not throw the ba- baby out with bathwater. You know, I mean, let's not forget that there are also issues that this demographic has to deal with um, that are significant issues. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I completely agree with you. And I suppose my criticism or, you know, my point wasn't to say that we shouldn't be focusing on these issues, but just to point out that the issues that we tend to hear about, especially in the mainstream, they tend not to be um, the views and the voices of some of the, the most marginalized women. So kind of the poorest women, um, uh, women who maybe their migration status isn't secure. Um, so... So it's, yeah, definitely not to take away from kind of white middle class women's problems, but just to, to highlight that maybe we're not always hearing the full story from a diverse uh, range of women as, as would be ideal. Yes. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I read in the introduction to your, I don't know whether this is a study or the introduction, um, I believe it is uh, an introduction, to a, you, you um, um, gave me the introduction to digital feminist interventions. Is that the name of your book or is that a study, so a separate that, study? So that's, a, that's my, my forthcoming book with Jessica Ringrose and Jessalyn Keller. So digital feminist activism, that's right. Okay, all right. And you had mentioned uh, you know, in, in this introduction that um, we 
we kind of have uh, assumed that we're in the post-feminist movement. I've heard that before. Um, mm. And when we were talking about uh, a period where it seemed like young women were afraid to say that they were feminist or didn't acknowledge that there was a need for for feminism. Um, and you, you define this as post-feminism, which isn't uh, unique to you. I mean, we've heard this before, post-feminism. Um, but it seems to me that... Um, in many ways, the original um, movement for feminism, the first wave, was to get the vote, to get some sort of political clout, to get some sort of some sort of toe into the equality. And then in the 70s, we had that second wave of feminism, which was all about equal opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. I just if I want to be a fireman and I'm good at it, why can't I be one um, just because I'm a woman? Um, that seems to have segued. And so this post-feminist movement that some people define as post-feminist period um, has actually become um, the the third wave, the fourth wave. I've heard some of people call it the fourth wave, um, yeah. where feminism, the definition of feminism and feminist activism has changed. Do you see that? Can you? What is the? What is? What is it to be a feminist in 2018 yeah. as opposed to 1970? Yeah, well, I would I would actually argue that many things have actually remained the same. So, in fact, a lot of third wave feminists, for example, because there is a lot of well, there's a lot of debate over the use of kind of the wave metaphor anyways. But there's a lot of debate, as you say, are we in the third wave or the fourth wave? A lot of third wavers um, certainly would say that they're they're still fighting for the same issues that the second wave uh, we're fighting for. So especially in places like the States, as I'm, you know, you're, you know better than I do, uh, where women's right to um, abortion, for example, is being challenged, where domestic violence and sexual assault is still a huge problem, where women have not a- a- achieved equal pay. So a lot of third wave feminists are still fighting and fourth wave feminists are still fighting for those issues. Um, but I think a lot of what what you know if we're talking about this fourth wave they're they're they talk a lot about kind of the sexualization of women they talk about um rape culture i mean rape culture i think is probably kind of the hook that has the predominant amount of focus so it's on the ways that women get blamed for when they're sexually assaulted or abused and actually i think the the prominence of sexual violence i think you know that's an issue that has has always been there in you know all the previous ways, but it, it seems to be a particularly um, strong issue within this wave of feminism as well. So if the question is what is it to be a feminist um, today, I mean they still are fighting for many of the same rights as is in the past. I suppose the main difference is that the they're the the tools that they're using to achieve this change has largely changed. So the platforms you know, the social media, the internet, digital technologies are now playing a really, really crucial role. And I think there's greater understanding and awareness that, you know, in some cases, it's of course important to take to the streets or to kind of take part in more traditional forms of activism. So lobbying, you know, writing letters to your uh, member of parliament or kind of senator. Whereas I think now there is often this view that actually in order to instill kind of political or social or cultural change, we have to get people to even change their mind. So talking and having these discussions online, you know, you don't need to be out on the street in order to change people's minds. You can be having these discussions online because quite frankly, that's where a lot of people spend their 
their time. They're, that's where they work online, they socialize online. Um, so that sort of activism, uh, it's, it's been talked about as kind of discursive activism, so trying to kind of change the way that people think and talk about certain issues is a really, really key part of this third or fourth wave feminism. When you define, and thank you for defining de- defining feminism today, especially the issue of rape culture. Mm-hmm. To be quite honest with you, I always thought rape culture meant that there was that underlying unspoken thing that women uh, could be victims. Um, uh, that's what I thought it meant. I've never heard anybody say that it has more to do with that attitude of woman blaming because that attitude pervades not just sexual assault. It pervades everything. I mean, we see it in courts. We see it in child custody issues. We see it, um, that attitude that women have brought things on themselves or women are basically untrustworthy or women are basically liars. And yet I don't hear that. I hear all of the discussion around rape, which clearly is a significant mm-hmm. issue and needs to be tackled, mm-hmm. but it, that's not the only issue. And so I, I'm encouraged to hear you say that, that when we're talking rape culture, we're really talking that underlying assumption about the integrity of women. Absolutely. And even when we're talking about rape culture, it doesn't actually just pertain to rape. It's talking about the spectrum of violence against women. So that includes street harassment all the way up to kind of yeah, serious sexual assault. So, you know, I, I talk about rape culture, um, especially in, in this book, as kind of a, the structural conditions that enable for violence against women to take place. So it's it's about kind of saying, you know, in some cases, we not only tolerate or excuse or condone sexual violence but in some cases we say you know well of course it just makes sense that if you dress in a certain way what should you expect you know you should expect some sort of violence so it's about this culture that um, allows for violence against women excuses it tolerates it and then blames women um, in the aftermath we're seeing a lot of anger from women in social media mm-hmm. and women have always uh, when they've been permitted or when they they have allowed themselves uh, have had anger uh, I imagine mm-hmm. if we go back to the first wave of feminism you saw mm-hmm. a lot of anger back then too but how that anger is exhibited seems to have changed but do you can you comment on that do you see that yeah. well I mean I suppose we can also think so it, it's really actually fascinating because my my research career started out looking at representations of second wave feminism in the news so the American and the British news media and one of the things that was that's really striking um, is about the way that even when a woman expresses herself even if it's not you know, screaming, shouting, she's often perceived as being angry. That's quite significant. And in fact, so I've also done some research looking at how first wave feminists were represented in the news. And I found like a few really fantastic um, photo spreads that show, you know, women with their mouths open who are speaking, but the captions kind of intone that, you know, these are angry women. Whereas in fact, it's, I suppose, debatable how well, I mean, we can assume that, of course, they're angry, but it doesn't mean, you know, when women are described as angry, sometimes even if we just voice an opinion, we're characterized as being angry. So I, so I, so in part, I think it's kind of perception, but in part, I think it's, it's become also more socially acceptable for women to be out on the street, to be shouting, to be chanting, you know, to be yelling. But I also actually think it's important to make the point that if you also look at the history of feminist activism... Feminists have also strategically made use of humor 
And I think that's also really interesting. So while we see a lot of angry women, angry feminists talking, we can also find lots of really creative examples of the ways that feminists make use of yeah, humor and irony to kind of point out sexism in their life. So there's lots of different um, websites where you can go and see, you know, the best comebacks or humorous, humorous responses to when you get sent a dick pic. You know, what are some kind of witty comebacks that you, you can kind of say to the man or... Um, uh, you know, if you're ever on going these dating apps and you have like a, a negative experience, how are different ways that you can, I guess, use humor to kind of point out how how ridiculous some of these men are? Yeah, well, and we've seen that uh, humor has been, um, I would say, marginally one of the weapons that women have always had. Um, they have to be pretty subtle about it, though, um, depending yeah. on the era and depending on the the venue, um, because uh, oh gosh, probably twenty five, thirty years ago, women comic comics. I, we've do, done a show about women in comedy, and we've had a couple of. Um, uh, really outstanding professional comedians on the show to talk about women's humor and it was not acceptable to talk about certain areas as a as a as a comedian you could talk you could uh, self-depreciate that was always humorous you could talk about your family that was always humorous now I still see it with some of the young comedians they've branched out but it's still mostly about their sex lives mostly about you know some politics they seem to be doing more politics but it's still the the palette for humor that seems to be socially acceptable for women to express seems to be a lot more restricted than it is for men and is that that the same on the internet for commentary and humor yeah so I mean I guess the great thing about the internet is you know use of memes and there's a whole different range of certain different tools that women can use I think sarcasm and irony um, are, are are quite important tools because they I suppose they can be seen maybe in the realm of like political communication which is maybe slightly more kind of acceptable maybe seen as um yeah, being slightly more kind of refined and sophisticated. So I think that actually with sarcasm and humor, if you use those tools, I think that women can probably get get out of saying um, a, a lot more. But yeah, um, other although, you know, I've seen some really hilarious responses to like getting sent dick pics. So, you know, I guess there we also see some kind of like low level humor being used as well. Now, because of the nature of the Internet, um, I mean, unless for some reason, uh, you know, I mean, I'm always getting emails on, you know, penis enlargement and uh, mm. Russian brides and, you know, um, but uh, for the most part, we only see what we seek out on the Internet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when women go to the Internet for activism, and I don't know if there's a proper terminology for it, but I can, mm -hmm. I call it Internet activism. Um, when, when we go to the Internet, you had mentioned something about, you know, women being seen and heard in different ways. Are we really being seen and heard, or are we still preaching to the choir? When the news media picks up something, like the hashtag MeToo movement, then it, then it takes off, and also you can't avoid it. But what about some of these other issues? Are, are by relying on Internet, and, and, and I understand that it's kind of at one level a silly question because that's what we have now, um, mm. but by relying on the Internet, are we really getting the message out or are we isolating ourselves even more? 
Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely something to be said about these echo chambers that we all kind of speak in. And I suppose the thing about the Internet, it's not even just that, you know, what are the websites that you go to for your news? But it's that, you know, there are all these cookies in the browsers that pay attention to what stories that you like. And therefore, the you know, the algorithms feed you the same types of stories. So definitely there is an element of that. Um, But also, I mean, I can definitely say um, women's voices are being heard uh, by diverse groups of people and increasingly what we see you know we see a lot of people who are out there to to troll and they do this for fun it's like a leisure activity for them so you'll have um, you know trolls who will follow a lot of uh, legitimately feminist accounts for the sole purpose of disrupting um, the sole purpose of trying to put women back into their place so yeah, we have trolls. We we get trolling on this show too. Yes, I I do not doubt that at all. I mean, even a part of like my research, you know, I've been trolled for speaking at a conference, just talking about the sort of thing that I'm talking about today. So, you know, I've had low levels experience of trolling. It hasn't been um, horrific, but part of the research that I was doing was interviewing um, some key organizers, so kind of the feminist leaders who are in charge of um, different movements, and some of the trolling that they told me about was horrific. It was coordinated, it was strategic, it was explicit and sexually violent, um, and left them, it left some of them quite traumatized. So, you know, um, but women, are, you know, women are quite resilient, and there are some really, really interesting strategies that feminists have developed over time, as I'm sure other internet users have developed over time to kind of mitigate and offset the risks of trolling and, and the impact of trolling as well. Yeah, um, you had mentioned um, that sometimes today, and I see this as well, um, both among women and and men, that because of the prevalence of feminist ideas, um, and and I'm going to go back to that hashtag Me Too because I've never seen anything make mainstream like that yeah, particular yeah. movement. Never yeah. any issue, um, mm-hmm. and justifiably so. Um, although I must say I, I do get a little confused by it because it started out I think with rape. And then it kind of segued into any kind of sexual harassment, some of which was more serious and some of which was, you know, I always call rule grab butt, you know, uh, but yeah. uh, which, you know, I mean, any any woman uh, who's still alive will tell you that that's just something you had to learn to deal with, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the one of the perceptions, the public perceptions, uh, and I think that because of the prevalence of social media, um, there's this perception by some that women are going for more than actual equality, than for more than their uh, just due, their share of the rights. Um, does the prevalence uh, of the coverage in social media, um, does, it, does it lead to that kind of assumption? I mean, it, it, studies have shown that if we read about certain things more frequently, uh, crime, for example, the, the more we read about it, the more we think crime exists. You know, mm-hmm. um, they, I mean, they've done studies and people who read one or two stories then perceives that this community has X level of of crime. People who keep reading more and more stories perceive that it has X times 10 level. Of crime. So yeah. are we getting that perception because of the uh, amount of coverage? What is that yeah. from? So this is a very old trend. So I found this exact same trend. So my, like I said, my, my PhD looked at representations of second wave feminism. And this was, so at the peak 
of kind of second wave feminism. We see we're this in the 1970s, 1970s. Yeah, we see this discourse kind of emerge in the news. So that I, I can give you many examples of newspaper headlines that precisely talked about, you know, especially in, in places like the UK, where there was um, equality legislation that was passed. That talked about, listen, this legislation has been passed. Women, you're equal now. So now any woman who, who claims to be a feminist is now fighting for more than their fair share. <laughs> so that that this is nothing new at all. Um, and in fact, you know, we see the same sorts of discourses and tropes being just reused over time. It's But because there's like 30 years between, you know, these newspaper articles, people forget that these are the exact same arguments that were used to dismiss second wave feminism and you know fascinating especially in places um, like Britain which had you know equality legislation so there's equality in theory but not in practice there's still a pay gap in the UK um, so you know to see kind of at the height um, of women's activism it's a really really strategic way of dismissing women saying listen you know we don't have to listen to you you're being irrational now because you've got this legislation so it's a way of kind of turning public opinion against these women so it's, it's the same thing that, that we're seeing now it's just one of the tactics that's known as part of the backlash so whenever you see um, feminist activism gaining momentum there are all these kind of what we call them counter discourses, so alternative discourses that kind of challenge the idea that uh, rape, for example, is as prevalent as it is, or sexual violence. So we can see this right now. You know, there's if you go online to some of the, I don't know if you've talked about uh, men's rights activists and kind of their websites, but there's huge, you know, discussion boards that are dedicated to kind of dismissing and critiquing statistics that say maybe one in four women one in five women is sexually assaulted um so you know it, it's just kind of the counter discourse to to feminist ideas and and um and, and activism well and those men's movements are not to be discounted um Absolutely. Uh, because uh, i do a lot of work in in the area of uh, uh intimate partner violence and boy that men's movement i mean if you if you google domestic violence uh-huh. Fully two thirds of what you get is all this, uh, you know, men's rhetoric with the pseudoscience. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, okay, don't exactly. I don't need the emails. I've heard it before. Okay, um, yeah. but, but the, you know, <laughs> it, it it's it's like, wow. I mean, th- these are powerful groups. These you are well organized, um, and it's amazing because if anyone says, you know, oh, it's just on the internet. These groups don't matter. Well, let's look at the recent attack in Toronto. Uh, by the man who drove down the pavement and killed 10 people, you know, posting on Facebook before about how it's part of the incel rebellion, so involuntary celibates. So it's exactly this kind of sort of discourse, this like anti-feminist discourse. It's not just confined to the internet. You know, these, not, of course, not all, of course, not all, um, but some of these men are absolutely engaging in extremely hostile acts towards women and other you know other groups it's not just women so uh, caitlin we know that there are men's rights movements out there and uh, the um, uh, involuntary celibates movements and all of these movements that can be quite vocal and and quite aggressive how does that impact the way women and girls are using 
participatory digital media? So uh, it impacts them in a number of ways. So some of the ways that it impacts them is in terms of actually giving um, some women and girls kind of fire to keep going. So they see a lot of this kind of misogyny and, and, and hate that's going in on online. And it makes them um, more determined, I suppose, to, to challenge it and to make it visible. And it's also giving them, I suppose, um, you know, a t- things to talk about when, when they go online. So when someone says, you know, we live in an equal society now, they can take examples of some of the hateful speech or kind of th- these hateful encounters that, that they've had, whether it's online or offline, and they can use those as evidence to say, listen, if things were really equal, we wouldn't be experiencing this. Um, I suppose that they're also... Um, you know, kind of specifically another impact is for some of them, it makes them want to go public and it makes them want to kind of call these call these practices or these people out. But for some of them, it also makes them want to go quiet and stay hidden. So we definitely know that there's evidence that, you know, women who experience this sort of kind of hateful speech, um, they they tend to withdraw, or whether it's for kind of short periods of time or long periods of time, um, but they often don't want to put themselves in a position where they're going to experience those sorts of things. So maybe um, maybe they leave kind of digital spaces altogether, or they start to be more creative in terms of using kind of closed or hidden groups. So groups that uh, you know the public, unless you you know you're in the network somehow, you won't even know that they exist. Or sometimes it's not about using kind of the Me Too hashtags, but it's about using hashtags that aren't really kind of attracting a lot of mainstream um, visibility, or there might be even kind of like code names or or um, acronyms or abbreviations that they might use um, to, to talk about different experiences, but in a way that's not going to draw a lot of mainstream attention or attention from, from trolls. Well, that's very helpful if you know who you're communicating with, but if you're trying to get a broader audience, doesn't that impede the the ability to, to go broader absolutely yeah definitely so it i suppose it's kind of one of one of these double-edged swords and there are some people who are really happy to have their stories kind of uh more widely broadcast but there are many other people for many legitimate reasons who again don't want their experiences or their stories shared or they're happy to share them but only through maybe anonymized spaces so there are lots of different spaces um hollaback's an example in the uk we have another um website called the everyday sexism project where people can still share their experience uh, but they're anonymized so it's not like with twitter where maybe you have a handle that people know that that's you or it's not via facebook which it's a platform that relies on authenticity. You know, you have to kind of have uh, your name and a verified email account in order to set one of these, uh, you know, a Facebook page up, whereas some of these sites are deliberately set up. They're designed, I suppose, from the start to help try to make it safer um, spaces for people who want to come forward with their stories. What is the benefit? Um, uh, I I mean, we're assuming that there is benefit uh, to coming forward with your story, um, but not every woman wants to do that. Um, What's the benefit? Uh, And when we're talking social media, we're usually talking really coming forward, not just sharing it with a a beloved friend or relative. Um, What's the benefit? Why do women and girls tend to do that? 
I think there's a few different reasons. So we can kind of think maybe individual benefits and we can kind of think of more kind of like collective benefits. So from the individual level, coming forward with their story can be really significant for many reasons because one, perhaps if they're coming forward with their story, perhaps they're past a point or they've kind of managed to um, get to a point where they don't believe these victim blaming tropes where they think that they're to blame for their experience. So it could be a, a complete change in consciousness where they went from blaming themselves for being raped or attacked or catcalled to actually recognizing that hang on a minute it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter if I'm wearing like very revealing clothing or if I'm you know fully covered up I still get catcalled on the street maybe it's not me maybe it's something else or uh, there are many many um, examples of women um, who will post in kind of their testimonials about how you know until they saw this hashtag they never they felt very alone and they felt as though no one would believe them or they didn't have the guts to kind of come forward and, and tell their story. So from an individual level, we see lots of different examples, even in the posts themselves, if you go onto some of these websites, Hollaback, Everyday Sexism, um, where people are talking about you know, how important it was finding this website. Oh my gosh, it saved my life. It made me realize I wasn't alone. It made me recognize that, you know, what I was experiencing was actually sexism and it wasn't just me and that it's problematic, but also that it's changeable. So this isn't something that I should have to deal with, but it's something that, you know, if we all come together and, and name it, we can actually change. So that's maybe kind of, you know, starting even from an individual level, but even broadening out to more kind of collective benefits. So trying to get society to recognize that, hang on a minute, what are these messages that we're sending young boys and, and young girls, or, you know, I suppose uh, men and women of any age, about, um, about sexual relationships and what's, I suppose, healthy yeah, healthy sexual relationships and, um, you know, who is actually to blame when someone does get assaulted. Well, certainly the more people that come on board with an issue, the more that issue kind of changes and expands. And I'm thinking 25 years ago when you said sexual assault, it was considered rape, some sort of physical assault. If you said domestic violence 25 years ago, it was considered a physical assault and nothing else was really considered. And because uh, I'm assuming uh, that because of the reason, because of the way that we women have opened up about these experiences, the definitions have kind of expanded. Some would argue too far. They've expanded too far. Uh, if you talk to some of the hashtag Me Too opponents, these people would say, wait a minute, if you touch somebody on the arm, then that can be considered harassment and I'm going to get in trouble and lose my job just because I touched you on your shoulder or something. Mm-hmm. So there are, it's kind of a, lo- a life cycle, if you will, form. How, how has the digital communication contributed to that changing definition, expanding definition? I think it's absolutely expanded, um, or, or maybe even if it hasn't expanded the definition of, say, what sexual violence is, maybe helped to communicate it to a broader public. Like, feminist academics for, you know, many, many decades now have been they think of sexual violence not as just kind of what we consider the most kind of serious cases, but sexual violence operates on a spectrum. So it starts with kind of the mundane, the ubiquitous uh, slap on the bum or, you know, hey, sweetheart, you know, go make me a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, um, all the way up to kind of serious instances of kind of like rape and sexual assault. So, you know, that's been part of feminist theorizing for a long time. But I suppose what we're seeing with digital platforms is that feminists now have the power and the control 
to share these messages to the public themselves. So without having to have them mediated and filtered through mainstream media, which quite frankly have not historically been very sympathetic to feminists or or feminist arguments, uh, feminists are able to kind of put these arguments forward themselves. So it's it's given them a lot of power, really, I suppose, to kind of challenge these dominant discourses around, you know, what's actually harmful um, and, and what's not. I think if I were a man right now, I would be nervous. I, I would be mm-hmm. nervous because I think the definitions have changed so that was uh, if you're a, a man in your 40s, for example, 20 years ago, definitions of acceptable behavior were quite different. Um, if you're a young man, um, perhaps, you know, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm extrapolating here, but I, I think if I were a man, I'd be a little nervous. Um, because of the proliferation of of um, the the communication about what men are doing wrong uh, um, in some of the online platform um, uh, sites that I've seen, there are actual names that are given. Um, they're yeah. maybe shielded a little bit. I think I'd be nervous. Um, is this use of the internet a double-edged sword, or is it all good, or? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, of course, it's not, you know, nothing is ever black and white. So it's not always, you know, inherently good. It's not always inherently bad. Um, It's also not not the platform, I suppose. It's how people are using it. So, you know, cultural norms have changed. So, yeah, what was socially acceptable, you know, 20 years ago is increasingly, it's not acceptable um, or tolerated. Maybe we should put it that way, because I'm sure for the women who had their, you know, bum slapped at, at work or had inappropriate comments made towards them, it was probably never really okay with them. But it was something that, you know, as women were, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, really kind of in number starting to enter the workforce. Um, starting to enter kind of these boys' clubs and enclaves. Um, I suppose they, for for many kind of legitimate reasons, were more willing or kind of had to put up with some of these behaviours. Whereas I think now where, you know, it shouldn't be unusual to see women in most professions, um, women are no longer willing um, to put up with this. And I should also point out, you know, we have some cases where men are coming forward as well and saying, you know, it's not just women who are getting sexually harassed, men get sexually harassed as well. Um, now, their voices are fewer and far between, but I suppose I'm always a little bit skeptical of, you know, when we hear these media stories of the witch hunt. Well, now women, you know, they're going too far, and, uh, you know, any man who flirts at work you know, poor men because they won't know the difference between sexual harassment and flirting. And I suppose my response to that is if you don't know the difference between sexual harassment and flirting, um, you know, the, the problem isn't society. I think the, the problem really lies with you. If you don't know what's considered appropriate or not, um, you know, I think that that's problematic and that's really telling as, in itself of, you know, how... Um, uh, yeah, I guess problematic some of our cultural norms are. In in some ways, though, that's um, uh, men and women think differently. Our brain processes are different. I'm I'm thinking of um, of the men I know where w- women will say, "Well, I think I've had enough of that," or you know, I mean, I'm not talking in a sexual thing. I'm just talking, mm-hmm. you know, "Oh, yeah, I think I've had enough of that," or um, "Oh, it, you know, no, I'm I'm ready to move on," or you know. And for men, it's like they just don't hear that. It's like you have to look them in the eyes and say, "No, no more of that," and then they go, mm-hmm. "Oh, okay." Um, so, uh, you know, really, I mean, it, it, women tend to be a little bit more, 
subtle, a little bit more. I don't know whether we've been socialized to try to not hurt people's feelings. Certainly that could be a factor. But um, men uh, somehow, you know, there used to be a comedian back in the... Uh, 60s. I'm trying to remember his name because I've read, I've heard some of his commentary. He always said that um, Leonard Cohen, I think, I, I might be wrong on that, but he had a commentary once that I, I heard a recording of that was really interesting. And he said, women are like cats and men are like dogs. And men will come up, they'll do something egregious, they'll be scolded, they'll duck their head, and then they go away and five minutes later they've forgotten it. They come back and want to be patted on the head with their tails wagging. Women right. are like cats. They'll take a bunch, they'll take a bunch, but then they're done, and they're done, and you keep coming at them, and they're going to swipe at you. Um, Mm. And I see some merit to that definition. I really do. And I think that a lot of women, myself included, will just kind of edge around it, and you know, instead of coming out and just hitting you over the head with my opinion uh, or what I want. Um, Yeah. So that communication difference that I see, I mean, I grant you I'm not quoting a study here, but I see that, and I'm thinking knowing that there are differences in the way we think is it enough for women to just kind of say to hedge or whatever and then just come out like the cats and swipe at you because i'm done you know i've had enough now yeah and i mean i don't even know if it's just the way that they think but also you know we have these cases now where you hear people i mean i'll use bill cosby in the states or in the uk there was a radio dj named jimmy savile Uh, Or in Canada, there was Gian Gomeshi, you know, a very well-known radio host, where, um, you know, people have come forward in the past with different allegations, but these allegations or their experiences have been completely dismissed. Mm. So even when women are coming forward and saying, hang on, this isn't right, whether they're saying it to kind of their uh, abuser or aggressor or someone else, a a person of authority, they're not actually being listened to. Um, And so I think, you know, it's so... So I think part of part of you is right. Women have been socialized perhaps to kind of be quieter or instead of like making a big deal because there have also been studies. I mean, Louise North in Australia has uh, she's studied sexual harassment in newsrooms. And, you know, there is this kind of common belief that if women make a complaint of sexual harassment, they're seen as a troublemaker. And oh, yes. that has for their kind of career progression. So rather than causing trouble, they may just choose to um, change jobs, for example, much more quietly. And that's in part because when they do come forward, their experiences are just, they're just not believed. So, um, yeah. Well, even with when they do come forward, I mean, um, I'm thinking of the Bill Cosby case, there were 17 women. Uh, I'm sure there were more, but there were 17 women who actually made it to court. And yeah. yet, the ju- one of the jurors, I believe, said that um, they didn't really want to come forward with that guilty verdict until he made, uh, until Cosby himself made an, an admission that he had done some particular thing. Then it was like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. now we'll convict you. Um, yeah. So even when women come forward, even in large groups, they're they're hardly hardly believed. Yeah, it's still disbelieved. No, it is. It's um, it, it's definitely true. And and because you know we have like the strength of these rape myths, these rape myths that suggest that you know women, um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, in the case of Canada, Jean Gomeshi, a very well known radio host, um, you know, because. I suppose it, it's this feeling that um, maybe they were kind of like jilted, or and you know women cry rape out of revenge, you know, when a guy breaks up with them. So, you know, I think there is still kind of this inherent belief, and especially if the the accused 
you know, abusers are nice guys or seemingly nice guys if they do charity work. I mean, Bill Cosby, wasn't he like kind of everybody's dad? Oh, yeah. You know, such a nice guy. So that's also when it becomes increasingly problematic. And it's interesting because I pay a lot of attention to this, you know, news coverage of, uh, you know, uh, rape cases, for example, or cases where there's accusations of rape. And I'm always amazed at how many times, you know, a friend of the defendant will be, well, he couldn't have done that. He's such a nice guy. And that, you know, that kind of trope is really, really powerful because we have a really hard time imagining that, you know, nice guys, the guy next door, you know, a father figure, a male friend could do something as kind of um, traumatic or, or horrific as rape. And again, we also have this very stereotypical view of what rape looks like, where it's a stranger who attacks a woman using violence in a dark alley and where, you know, she puts up this kind of like valiant fight. Whereas we know from psychologists and, um, you know, that rather than having the fight or flight, it's the, the freeze and flop. A lot of women just panic and they freeze. So they don't have, you know, the physical scars, for example, to kind of demonstrate that they tried to resist their attacker or they were sleeping and it was like a friend in the house. So he didn't have to break in. It was in a place where they felt safe. But but these rape myths are still incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, and I think they're going to take, you know, many, many more decades, probably, um, if they ever do uh, dissolve or they're, you know, kind of challenged. It's, it's very, very difficult to challenge them. Well, and I think, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, that example up, because of the nice guy, because I uh, have taught a course in how um, domestic violence is reported. And yeah. invariably, and I can show you an entire file full of news stories where the, the formula for reporting domestic violence, and usually it's not reported unless there's something egregious, that, uh, an egregious outcome. Uh, there's a death or a shooting or, you know, something. Then that makes the newspapers. If there's just mm-hmm. an incident that doesn't result in the egregious ending, it usually doesn't yeah. make the newspapers. Um, and you, so you've got uh, a formula for most of the ways that, or most of the reporting styles that they use. And that is to blame the woman. I have one news article that I saved in the, uh, the headline was, fa- uh, 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 I'm try- I wish I had it in front of me, but mom files for divorce, dad goes berserk. So who's at fault here, right? I mean, it's yeah. not dad goes berserk. And then you, you read on in the article and he, it, the, the guy killed his, his children. He put four children in his trunk. He killed them, drove around with them for two days. You know, and then uh, his his wife, his ex-wife, reported him missing with the children. The the police didn't take it seriously because he they were with dad, and you know, and here he did this egregious stuff. And the first thing that they do after they report that is to get a quote from a neighbor about what a nice guy he was. Yeah. And I have another headline that you know, uh, wonderful dad kills self children. You know, wonderful dad. If he was so wonderful, he wouldn't have killed him, would he? I I mean, so there seems to be a formula you know, for how these things are reported. And uh, we do minimize, we, we, we forgive these guys if we can blame a woman, can't we? Yeah. And I suppose this is where, you know, social media can play a really powerful role. Like, in, so in Canada, after the Gyeonggameshi, um 
scandal, there was a hashtag that trended in Canada called Bin Rape Never Reported, because one of the things that came forward was, you know, especially nowadays, we're hearing all of these historic allegations of rape and abuse coming forward, and well, if they were legitimate, if they really happened, why didn't they report it? And actually, there are really, really complex and complicated reasons why people don't report their assault. And so this is where we can see the power of social media. I mean, it was like millions of people tweeted using this hashtag, explaining precisely you know, highlighting the prejudice in the system, showing links to news articles which precisely blame victims, and then saying, why are you surprised that women aren't reporting their rapes? When they are reported, you know, they are absolutely crucified. And it was interesting because there was one article, um, it was from a, a lawyer in Canada who was saying that if his daughter was ever raped, he would absolutely not urge her to take it forward through the court system because he knows how badly women um, have historically been treated you know they are the ones who are seemingly kind of put on trial so it's um you know this is i suppose one space where social media can be very powerful now i suppose long-term impact can be slightly more difficult to measure in the short term you know we see a lot of media coverage around these sorts of hashtags longer term you know i think it is changing people's minds and it is slowly 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 kind of chipping away at these rape myths um, but again because they are so deeply ingrained um, it's going to take a long time but at least you know at least there's hope and at least there are these new tools to, to start to chip away at them well one of my concerns and, and i will ask you this is that as we change that definition of sexual assault as we change that definition of sexual harassment so are we watering down the definitions i mean just because we're talking about you know the pat on the bum and we're including that as sexual harassment which i'm not saying it shouldn't be i'm just saying that if we include that with some of the more egregious um assaults that women experience if we put those on the same plane are we not watering down and taking away from the severity of the other uh behavior yeah, so that's a really great question, and it's a really difficult one to say because one of the things that came out really strongly in our research was about the ways that it is, in fact, these men, these seemingly mundane and ubiquitous and the everyday experiences of harassment that take a, a tremendous toll on women's lives that force women, or not force, but you know, women um, stop going for a run at night because they're, uh, you know, or at any time of the day, or wearing certain clothing because they're sick and tired, um, or they feel threatened um, from all the catcalling, from the horn honking, from the ways that people follow them. Um, you know, there are many testimonials that I read about people who, um, yeah, no longer walk a certain way to work because, you know, there's a construction site there, or there's always a group of people who hang out, and they're always catcalling them, and they don't feel safe. Many testimonials of people saying that I quit my job because, you know, I was being, you know, it wasn't rape. It wasn't, um, you know, what we might call kind of, quote unquote, more serious. But nevertheless, it, it takes um, a mental and, and an emotional toll on people. So to just kind of manage where you're bracing yourself for, okay, I'm going to walk down the street. I know I'm going to get harassed. Um, you know, just try, I suppose, trying to cope with it. So my argument would be that we shouldn't. And, you know, we shouldn't just assume that because um, there are no physical marks of violence, for example, doesn't mean that these sorts of experiences aren't harmful on women. And, and you know, it's not fair to classify. Not every woman who gets catcalled or kind of street harassed or slapped on the bum will feel traumatized. Um, but many women will feel, will feel very... Minimized. Uh, 
Absolutely, from these yeah. sorts of experiences. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I was talking to a young person the other day, and I mentioned the word the diminutive, you know, the suffix that diminutive, you know, actress, you know, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, I, that's the only one that's coming to mind right now. Um, and this, she was a young girl, and she had never heard the the phrase, you know, diminutive, the diminutive suffix. And I said, well, that's, she, I, it's good that you've never heard of it because now we call yeah. actors actors instead of di- dividing them up. Um, and I was explaining to her that the reason for that suffix was that it was a subtle thing, but it definitely marked marked you as different and less than by yeah. using that diminutive. Um, yeah. And so as our language changes and as our behaviors change, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll start minimizing some of this other, you know, uh, stuff that we're seeing. One other question that I have for you, because our t- time is running out here, is that one of the, the things that marked your study was that you mapped the experiences. Can you tell me what you mean by mapping the experiences and what did you find out by doing that? Yeah, so we were looking, I suppose, um, one of the things that really is different about our study is that rather than just looking at the online content, so for example, looking at what people are tweeting to various hashtags or what they're posting on these sites, which we also did, um, but we were also actually speaking to them to find out what it's like to participate in a hashtag like this. What's it, what's it like for the first time to share your story of being raped um, or, you know, on an everyday level um, to share your experience of, you know, this is just kind of everyday harassment. And so I suppose what we mean when we talk about MAPT is we were just trying to show that um, digital feminist activism is much more, I suppose, kind of complex and nuanced that, than one might initially think. So there are many, many different um, reactions. Uh, there are many different experiences. So for some, you know, sharing their experience could be, it could be traumatic in itself. But for many other people, it was very uplifting. It could be scary. A lot of people felt very strongly, actually, feelings of kind of community and connection um, with other people. You know, people talked about finding friends or, or communities um, through their engagement with, with these online um, groups. So I suppose when we were mapping, as we were just looking at the various different experiences and um, um, and I suppose just kind of laying them out. And, and it, again, that's something that um, very few people are actually going to speak to people who use these sorts of platforms, and, and that's one of the things that marks our study out. Yeah. Caitlin uh, Mendes, Dr. Caitlin Mendes, I have enjoyed so much your conversation. I could keep going for hours. Um, what's next for you? What are you going to be looking at next? I've started a new um, project with uh, one of my co-authors of this book, Professor Jessica Ringrose, where we're looking at um, charities and other groups who run workshops on transforming masculinity, because one of the things that is really become apparent to us is, as we mentioned earlier, talking about kind of these men's rights activists and uh, looking at kind of toxic masculine practices of, you know, a very um, sexualized trolling. And so we want to actually study these various interventions that go into schools and run workshops on trying to challenge masculinity and seeing how um, effective they are. And uh, again, finding out the experiences of the people who participate in these workshops to see to what extent can, you know, having someone come in and talk to you about what it means to be a man, um, what kind of impact can that have? Sounds fascinating. Are you familiar with Voice Mail Magazine, M-A-L-E? 
No, I'm not. Um, I think it's produced in Massachusetts. It's a quarterly, and um, it is uh, a, a feminist man's magazine, men's magazine, um, and they have um, some interesting articles. I've, I've actually had a couple of people from who've uh, written articles for there, including the editor of Voicemail on the show, uh, oh, wow. talking about you know defining masculinity. One of the things that always bothers me is when a men's group defines itself as a feminist men's group. Why can't it just be a feminist group? But you know, Forget. oh well, <laughs> I'm picking at nits. I know. All right. <laughs> so that sounds like a wonderful approach, and I hope that when you uh, get your teeth into that, that you'll come back and we'll talk about that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week. 